0: Okay, today we are going to do the second part of the lymphatic system. Lymphatic system and immunity. And today we're going to talk basically about immunity. The two mechanisms that we mentioned last time: innate immunity and adaptive immunity. We're we'll going to the detail of all of these mechanisms, how they work, and uh, how they how efficient they are in protecting us. From injuries from attack from microorganisms and from foreign particles in general last time we finished defining innate immunity and we say that includes a variety of responses different types that protect us against these external factors particles microorganisms and molecules but without being specific is completely non-specific. We said that we are born with this immunity. We bring that in our genes, our DNA codes for different types of antibodies uh, because of years and years of uh, evolution and we are exposed to the environment and millions of antigens to which we are protected against. And this innate immunity works on two lines of defenses. The skin and mucous membranes, which is the first line of defense. That's how we know it, the first line of defense, we usually say uh, skin and the mucous membranes. And the second line of defense are internal defenses. Now here is where we see a transition between internal defenses, nonspecific and specific. And we'll see all these mechanisms and how at some point they turn into something specific. First, we have a bunch of mechanical barriers, mechanical defenses, and not only skin and mucous membranes, but also body fluids like the tears, saliva, mucus, they contain lysosomes. Which are antibiotics? Actually, they are antimicrobial agents, although not specific. They just kill bacteria. Gastric juice, pH two, very acidic, and that is not um, a good environment for many bacteria. They just die in the stomach. Mucus and the respiratory system have mucus. All these pseudostratified columnar epithelium with cilia. They're always moving, sweeping away all the dust, particles, and everything we breathe that can affect our lungs. The urine, the urine pH, the volume of urine that can be uh, produced every day, defecation, vomiting. All these are mechanical defenses. Sometimes when we eat something that is not good, a food that is contaminated, we vomit. It's just a response of our stomach to protect us against uh, the microorganisms. The sebum, which is a secretion of the sebaceous glands, also contains antimicrobials. During puberty, this changes its composition and is not so protected gets infected and contaminated with bacteria and the sebaceous glands will get infected. So all those are mechanical defenses, chemical defenses, non-specific, part of the innate immunity. Phagocytosis is also non-specific. It's part of the innate immunity. And phagocytosis is a process that happens in two types of cells, neutrophils which we study in uh, blood, neutrophils is one of the types of blood cells, and macrophages. The macrophages, if you remember from blood, we describe the monocytes, one of the blood cell, white blood cell types, monocytes. Well, the thing with the monocytes is that monocytes are circulating in the blood. We find them in the blood. But when there is an invasion, of a microorganism, the monocytes will leave the blood, go to the tissues, and they will turn into macrophages. So neutrophils and macrophages are the ones who perform this phagocytosis, which is described in different phases as we see here. Number one, chemotaxis. These cells are attracted by different types of chemical mediators that are produced by the microbe, in this case, the bacterium, and also from our body. And these cells are attracted by that, and that's how they know that there is something going on in some part of our body. When they get there, the second process, or second step, is adherence. And we see how these cells, they send membrane, cell membrane projections that surround and wrap this microorganism, and include it in a vesicle called phagosome. That's a process of ingestion. Now the microbe is inside the cytoplasm in a vesicle called phagosome. This phagosome will join a lysosome that, as we remember, if you remember, they contain digestive enzymes lysosomes from phagosome, and this bacteria will be destroyed, digested, broken down in pieces. And that's the process of digestion in the cytoplasm, and then after, of course, this bacteria will die, and the pieces, residual bodies, sometimes they remain inside the cytoplasm, or other times they are removed by exocytosis outside of the phagocyte. An example of how sometimes the residual bodies, they remain inside the cytoplasm is these, um, and we see sometimes lungs, of people with lung cancer, smokers, we see the black spots. All those black spots are phagocytes that eat dust particles, carbon particles, and they remain in the cytoplasm in vesicles. Along the years, that's what we see from outside: a large concentration of these cells. And what they did was to protect our our lungs from these particles. So that's a process of phagocytosis that is non-specific part of the innate immunity. Another mechanism is fever. Fever is defined as an abnormal high body temperature, and this happens because that control center, regulatory center that we have, there is a temperature control in the hypothalamus, is reset. It's reset. Normally, we should have 98.6, 37 Celsius, but when there is an invasion of a microorganism, let's say, these microorganisms produce substances that are going to affect the hypothalamus, And I'm going to to reset that thermostat. This is like when we reset a thermostat at home. And so the body temperature will be reset at a different level. And this this time it's a high body temperature, fever. This is a non-specific response. And it's part of the immunity, fever is good. It is good because it's going to speed up body reactions we increase the temperature, we favor chemical reactions. Increase the effects of endogenous antimicrobials. microbials in the same line. More enzymes, we warm it up, and the chemical reactions will be more effective. And the last effect of fever is that the nutrients that are used by these microorganisms, they are sequestered. That means that they cannot be used by the microorganisms. Those are benefits of fever. That's why in patients who have infections, for instance, and are hospitalized, the goal is not to lower the fever all the way down to normal. It's to make the fever not so high, lower it, but if it's like 37.5 Celsius, it's not normal. It's a little bit uh, increased, but it's fine. We'll leave it like that because the body is fighting against microorganisms and the body needs to be at that temperature. If we lower it too much, then we're going to favor the microorganisms and they're going to re- reproduce even more perhaps. Yeah. So is that basically what like and all that other aspirin-type things are when it says that it like cures you a fever It's just really just bringing it down like a few degrees? The point is, that fever may be dangerous if it's too high. That is the point. We shouldn't allow the fever to go too high. Sometimes the infections are so severe and those chemicals will reset the hypothalamus at a level that is really high and that gets out of control. And in that case, we need to lower the fever, but not to normal. Just make it not so high. So leave it, if it's 38 Celsius, that's fine. If the patient is in the hospital, they can with treatment of antibiotics, that's fine. And even more, if the patient is with treatment and uh, in treatment with antibiotics, we need to know if the patient is responding to the treatment. And the best way to assess the response is see how the fever goes in 24, 48 hours. So if we just give Tylenol, Advil, every four hours in order to keep the fever normal all the time, we'll never know if the microorganisms are being controlled by the body. And uh, that's why fever is good, but it is a problem where it's too high, especially in kids. In children, it gets uh, very dangerous because it will affect the enzymes of the nervous system and produce seizures, and it may cause hypoxia and even brain damage. So it's, uh, sometimes, um, usually at home, I remember when I was a kid, my grandmother says, "Have oh, fever, just lower the fever, all prices, Give all types of treatments, pills, and solutions, and Preparations and infusions, teas of different types, soup, I don't know what else, but besides a shower, I mean a bath and alcohol in the forehead, and that all the time, it was, it was, it was like I think it was a big, big deal, someone had fever. Well, yeah, was, then after we learned that just give yeah, some Tylenol, Advil, whatever works best. Some cases require real treatment without many things. Like there are things like a heat stroke, um, which is very abnormal elevation of the temperature, and it's really dangerous. But usually when there's an infection of this diet, you just need to keep the temperature at reasonable levels and then not get too stressed about it. Because fever, at a certain point, is a good thing. When it goes even higher, then becomes a problem. Same thing with inflammation. Inflammation is a process that includes, and this is how it's described, and it's been described in thousands of years. The, the, the um, physicians, ancient Greece, they described inflammation. They just they didn't call it inflammation; they called it with these four signs, redness, pain, heat, and swelling, that we know now that as inflammation, and we know why that happens. Well, the inflammation is a response of all these mechanisms, all these mechanisms working in different circumstances like infections, burns, cuts. It is a non-specific attempt to get rid of the microbes foreign materials and help for healing so inflammation is good yes it's good because it means that you are your body is working if you have inflammation that means your body's working all the mechanisms are working phagocytosis chemicals the blood vessels are bringing more cells everything is working if you don't have inflammation you have an infection that you may be Uh, You have to be concerned, because your body is not reacting, and microbes may win the, the fight. Now we know what are the mechanisms that inflammation involves. First, vasodilation, increased permeability of the blood vessels. Why? Because more cells are needed. In the place of infection where the invasion is going on we need more cells we need to bring more nutrients and therefore the blood vessels will dilate open their uh, pores their gaps and more blood is brought to the place and how we see that red we see a red patch on the skin for instance immigration or movement of phagocytes from the blood to the interstitial space and to the site of damage redness, swelling because cells are coming out of the blood vessels as as well as fluid. And that goes where it goes to the interstitial space. So there will be swelling, redness, swelling. And here in this diagram we see how the blood vessels are dilating and opening the gaps. And you see this cell is coming out or the blood vessel is squeezing by chemotaxis, getting the place of infection. And we can see like a little bump here on the skin as a sign of swelling and, of course, redness because more blood is concentrated at that area. And that's how we understand the, 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 the function of the lymphatic system because the phagocytes, all of them start working here, fighting against infection, etc. But everything is going on in the interstitial fluid. So all these microbes in the interstitial fluid may be captured by the lymphatic vessels. And the lymphatic vessels pick up all this fluid and bring bacteria with it. Where? To the next lymph node, where these bacteria will be filtered. So this process of movement or immigration of phagocytes Depends on chemotaxis, as we said. The first cells that arrive to the place are the neutrophils. The neutrophils. And then in the meantime, the monocytes will turn into macrophages, will come out of the blood vessels, and will get to the place and it will, we, it will be stronger than the neutrophils. They will have more, uh, they will be more important than neutrophils in a second step. And we see that as pus. If you get a drop of pus, if you have an infection in the skin, there's a lot of pus. You get a drop under the microscope, you'll see a lot of macrophages, neutrophils, most of them dead because they just, eat the bacteria and then after some hours they die. So we see that that, that's what the pus is. Dead phagocytes plus damaged tissue plus bacteria. That's the way sometimes we do diagnosis. Like we get an infection and we get a sample of the pus. We go to the microscope and see the bacteria. Or make cultures of that. There's a lot of bacteria that will start growing and we identify And the pus formation continues, as long as the infection is there, until the infection is completely controlled. So all this process includes also edema, we said that, because of increased permeability of the blood vessel, fluid comes on as well as the cells, and we have swelling. And why pain? Why it hurts? It hurts because all the place, all this interstitial uh, space where the fluid is getting accumulated and the cells are working is filled with nerve endings. And the chemicals that are being released, inflammatory chemicals, they will irritate the nerve endings. Besides, if it's swollen, that will squeeze these nerve endings and irritate those causing pain. So if we have an infection and we give anti-inflammatories, there are medications called anti-inflammatories that control the inflammation, would that be good or not to give anti-inflammatories? It looks like it's not good. Inflammation is a good thing. It's a sign that our body is fighting against these microorganisms and infection. But in the same direction as fever, there is a point at which inflammation is dangerous. If the inflammation is out of control and that happens sometimes or it leads to much pain with it, then we need to do something about it. That's the reason of the anti-inflammatories. But the point is not to control the inflammation and just Eliminate inflammation. Inflammation is fine, that's a good response. But it may get to a certain point where tissue may be damaged. When inflammation gets out of control, tissue may be damaged. Pain is very severe sometimes. So in that case, we need to give anti-inflammatories. But it's not the main point to control the inflammation completely. Questions, comments to this point, let's get into adaptive immunity. Adaptive immunity is related to a word, specific, is the ability that we have to respond to an injury, an invasion, in a specific way. We know who is attacking us. We have information. Of bacteria, viruses, foreign tissues like in transplants, and toxins of different types like in poisons. Now, for the adaptive immunity to start, there must be an antigen present. What is an antigen? The definition of an antigen is any molecule, any substance that can start an immune response in the body. So anything, any particle, any molecule that provokes a response from the body, that's considered an antigen. Dust, in the cases of people that are allergic to dust, that's an antigen. Peanuts, people are allergic to peanuts, that's an antigen. Penicillin is a medication. Some people are allergic to penicillin. Penicillin is the antigen. So anything that can provoke a response, immune response from the body. As you see in this picture, we see this antigen that, I don't know if it's a bacteria or a microorganism or just a molecule or something. But in the graph, they label certain points here that are called antigenic sites because those areas are the ones that provoke the immune response. And if you see in blue, those antibodies, those proteins, are adhered to those antigenic sites because that is a place, that is the, the, the part of the molecule that provokes the immune response. So every antigen has usually antigenic sites. So little parts, small parts of the molecule or the bacteria or viruses, that provokes this immune reaction. And we know them as epitopes. Each epitope is capable of producing immune response. We have an antigen, which is the big, big thing which may be a bacteria, may be a virus, may be a a large molecule, a protein. Some people are allergic to proteins of the milk. Well, the proteins of the milk have epitopes, little portions of the molecule, which provoke the immune response. Sometimes the entire microbes or viruses are just the antigen, but in most of the cases are just some sites, some sites of the or the microorganisms, the ones that provoke the immune response. Yes? The epitopes are the um, antigenic sites? Yes, the antigenic sites. Antigenic sites, antigenic determinants, epitopes. It is interesting and important to understand for immunizations, because many immunizations are produced based on reaction to epitopes. So we don't need to receive, or we don't need to use the whole virus to make a a vaccine. We just need some epitopes, some parts that we know are the parts that provoke the immune response. So that's about the immune response, I mean, the antigens that must be antigens so the immune response will get started. Then the second thing to know is about the MHC molecules. MHC stands for Major Histocompatibility Complex. And what are those? These are like markers. Markers. Every single cell of our body has these proteins called MHC molecules. everyone has a different configuration of MHC molecules. When we transplant organs, we look for the match, the best match, a good match. We're talking about MHC molecules. There's no perfect match unless you get a transplant from your twin, brother or sister. But usually, there is a good match where these molecules are very similar. Well, these proteins are coded by a group of genes, and those uh, are called the Major Histocompatibility Complex, or MHC. They are different to every single individual. Sometimes they are very similar, sometimes very different. And those are the ones that the thymus cells, remember we talked about thymus, and the T cells are the ones that get trained to recognize self and non-self molecules, or they learn to recognize the MHC molecules. Which of them are MHC molecules from the cartilage, MHC molecules in the bone, in the heart, in the skin, in the eyes? There are two types of MHC molecule: class one and class two. The class one is present in almost all body cells. Almost all body cells. And they are used, as we will see, they are used to present foreign proteins, foreign particles, in case of an infection or invasion of, uh, of, of a foreign substance. We'll see how that works. These, these proteins, what they do is to present. And who they present to? It, they present to cells of the immune system. And the class two, MHC2, two, they are found only on one cell, the APCs, which, are, which stands for antigen-presenting cells. Antigen-presenting cells are cells that are going to present the antigen to other immune cells, but they, are, they belong to the immune system. These class 2 molecules are present in these APCs, which are cells of the immune system also. Class 1 is is in almost every single cell, the cell of the skin and the stomach, everywhere. Class 2 only in those cells of the immune system. We'll see how that works in the specific mechanisms. So, let's get into the adaptive immunity. The adaptive immunity, as I said at the beginning, is like a transition. When we get an infection, when we get an infection, uh, the first thing is mechanical protection, physical barriers, and if they fail, when the microorganism enters our body, and then comes a non-specific innate immunity, inflammation, fever perhaps, but macrophages arrive there. But quickly, the adaptive immunity starts because probably it's not the first time that we are exposed to these microorganisms of, that are usually on the skin or are usually contaminants of the environment and we cut ourselves and these microorganisms enter the body. And we know them already. So we have the weapons to kill them. And that's what adapted immunity is. So the innate immunity is like the first response, but then we get very specific, and we know we know those guys, so we have the weapons to kill them quickly. That's how this adaptive immunity works. Problem is when it's the first time that you're exposed to some microorganism, your non-specific will work, but your adaptive will be slow. When you know the microorganisms already, the response is much quicker, and sometimes it's very effective. So there are two types of adaptive immunity, and there are two things to remember about the adaptive immunity, two characteristics, which are the, it's specific and it has memory. Memory in the sense that, as I was saying, you get exposed to some microorganism, you know the microorganism already, so the next time you're exposed, you have memory. Your immune system has memory. Not, not like the memory of the brain, the memory is a number of cells that are in the lymph nodes, in the spleen, in the bone marrow. Cells are sleeping there, not active, but they keep information about these particular organisms that we were exposed to before. And we have two types of immunity, cell-mediated and antibody-mediated. For being specific, the cells have to distinguish which are self molecules and distinguish them from the non-self molecules. This is a part of where this training in the thymus uh, is very important. Because if they don't learn to recognize, we will, we will start attacking our own cells, which happens sometimes. And memory is when we keep some cells from previous encounters as the memory cells. We keep memory against those microorganisms. And that's what the immune system involves. This is a summary. It's a brief summary of the whole immune response. This is very, very complicated, and there are many, many mechanisms involved here and there are some other cells that exist that are not included in this diagram to make it more simple and easy to understand the basic pathways and basic lines. But there are many more things here involved. But this is showing the main mechanisms and the main pathways of how they work. We're gonna see this graph again later, but let's go over it first to have an idea of how this works. The green square The green square means any secondary lymphatic organ and tissue. So all those cells will be in the lymph node, spleen, tonsils, payer's patches, all those cells are in those places. And above the square, we have two organs, the red bone marrow, because that's the place where all these cells of the immune system are produced. B cells, T cells, monocytes, macrophages, neutrophils everything is produced in the red bone marrow. And as we said last time, some cells are sent to the thymus. Thymus and bone marrow are the primary lymphatic organs. Some cells are sent to the thymus where they get mature, and the T cells, the mature T cells, are ready to go to the secondary lymphatic organs, and that's what we see here. Maturity cells, they leave the thymus and they populate all the secondary organs. What about the B cells are produced in the bone marrow and they go straight to the secondary lymphatic organs? They don't need need much training. They're already programmed for that. Well, inside the organ, the secondary organ, now we have B cells and T cells. The B-cells, they have a receptor on the surface of their membrane. And the T-cells, they also have a a receptor, which is different. Now, notice that there are two types of T-cells, cytotoxic T-cell and helper T-cell. We will see later also that the cytotoxic T-cells are also called CD8 cells. And the helpers are called CD4 cells because they have these proteins called CD8 and CD4. Now, what happens now? Well, these cells are in the lymph node. They are just waiting and some microorganism comes. This arrow is showing activation, activation, activation. They get activated by exposure to some microorganism. Well, the B cells will turn into plasma cells and start producing antibodies. that is cell mediated response, or cell mediated, I mean, uh, antibody mediated response. And the T cells, the cytotoxic T cells, CD8 cells, they will be activated to form cytotoxic T cells, which are going to, are going to leave the lymph node, let's say, and they're going to fight against invaders, and basically are going to destroy infected cells. Well, the antibodies leave the organ, go to the blood, and look for more of these microorganisms. Well, there's something missing here. What about the helper cell? Well, the helper cell will be activated also. And you see these two arrows. Because the helper is going to help the activation of T cells and the activation of B cells. They help both mechanisms, cell-mediated and antibody-mediated. These are the main pathways of how the immune system or immune uh, response works. Now there are many different other components. We're going to talk about some of them in the next uh, in the next slides. And. Uh, go a little bit to the detail of what happens with these with these cells questions comments (coughs) break 10 minutes